Wow. There are a lot of awesome people in the room this morning. I'm not sitting anymore, so I don't know what that makes me, since I'm not sitting next to anybody. Hey, before we get into the message, I want to share with you an update to a project that we have been working on for about the last six months. We've had a team of people, and along with our staff and elders, working on updating our vision statement. And so uh, we've had uh, a team of six, half staff, half elders, uh, who've been working on this diligently, met about eight times. And then we've had some consultants, some internal to Grace Point, some external. They've been coming in, helping guide us through the process. And just in the last week, we have presented to, the elders have been involved in this all throughout, but we presented to the elders the final version of the vision statement, and they approved it. And so we have finished this process. We finished this part of the process. Now the work really begins, because we've got to figure out what does this look like for us over the next five years. But uh, I want to share this with you this morning. I want to share it briefly, and then we'll get into it in more detail next month. We'll devote a whole message to talking about what it means. And before I share it this morning, I want you to, to realize, some of you are new to, to Grace Point, so you don't know this, but our previous vision statement that we're just coming out of led to some, at least two very significant steps for us as a church. The, the previous vision statement had to do with having a regional impact for Jesus Christ. And it led to us establishing a partnership with a church in Bolivia that we have now been to visit a number of times. And we have a team that's going in just a couple of months this summer to visit again. So we established that partnership. We also planted Restoration Church in Levittown. So those are just a couple of examples of how much impact a vision statement can have when we are carrying it out. And so with that... I want to get a drum roll and give you our new vision statement for the next five years. Can we have a drum roll? All right. And here it is. And here it is. Bill. And again. All right. There it is. Building bridges for life change through Christ. So simple statement, seven words. There's a lot packed into that that we're going to unpack over the next uh, several years. But just the, the building bridges piece, uh, we want to see that happen internally inside of our four, four walls, um, connecting people with one another. We want to continue to do a better and better job of connecting new people who are coming to Grace Point looking for a church home. We want to continue to do a, a great job of connecting people through life groups. And again, the, the why of why we want to connect people is for life change. So it's not just a social club, it's really about a transforming relationship through Christ. So none of us on staff, we're not able to change anybody's heart, none of us as individuals, we can't change anybody, we can't change our neighbors, but we can build bridges to introduce them to Christ. And so that happens on an individual level, and then outside of our walls, we really want to see some exciting things happen. We've got some ideas brainstorming about connecting with our community, building bridges to our community, building bridges to people who are far from God, even people who are very different and think very differently than we are. So, so stay tuned for more on that, um, but I want to ask you to keep praying. Those of you, I know many of you have been praying for the last 20 weeks for this process, and so uh, this week actually staff is going to begin to dig into this and start brainstorming how do we put legs to this and what does it look like for the next five years. So please don't stop praying, and we'll be talking about this more and more uh, as the weeks and months come. 
This morning I want to talk about destiny. Some people believe that our destiny is all about the choices that we make as individuals. Other people think that it's all, about, it's all by chance. And it just kind of randomly happens to us. So the, the choice people, they would have as a life motto that uh, if it's to be, it's up to me. I mean, life is all about what I make it. It's all about the choices that, that I make. They would resonate with the, the final lines of the poem Invictus, if you're familiar with that. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so their identity could be summed up as a victor. I mean, they're going to be victorious over anything that happens in their life. They, they're going to tackle it, and they're going, to, they're going to win because of the choices that they make. On the other side of that is people who believe that life is really all about chance. And there's, it really doesn't matter what I do or what I choose. Life just kind of comes at me, and I'm just going to have to try to make the best of it, but it's going to kick my feet out from under me. So that mentality can really lead us to a victim mentality where I feel like, what's the use? And why should I even bother? And so in in the midst of this, as we try to think about our destinies being either by choice or by chance, we, we might ask the question, where does God fit into that? I mean, is God involved in our destiny at all? And if he is, is he like totally in control? Is he totally micromanaging us so that it really doesn't matter what choice we make because he's just going to have his way anyway? Or is he so absent and so removed that it really is all up, up to us? The theological tension that, that we talk about, if you're familiar with these terms, is the sovereignty of God and then human free will. How do those things work together? If God is sovereign over all things, then do humans really have free will? We're going to wrestle with those questions over the course of this month as we study a book called Esther. Really fascinating book, uh, really great piece of ancient literature, a short story, kind of a precursor to a short story, uh, really strong characters. We've got an epic conflict we got some irony and some humor, and so it's, it's just a really fun book. Also, probably the most controversial book in the Bible. For this reason, there is no mention of God throughout the book of Esther. Which seems a little strange, don't you think, when, when God inspires this book to show us who he is and what he's about. And most of the books in the Bible, I mean, he's front and center stage, but there's not even a mention of God in Esther. In fact, there's very little spiritual element in, in Esther at all. There's uh, no mention of the law, of, of following God's commandments. There's no mention of prayer. And so we kind of come to, to this book, come away from this book of, of Esther, where uh, God is usually in the spotlight in most of the Bible scripture books. In Esther, he is completely behind the scenes. And I think some of us will be able to relate to this, because in your life right now, you may feel like God is very much behind the scenes. You may be asking for something, you may be looking for something, pleading for something from God, and he's just not showing himself right now. And so you may resonate with what's going on in Esther, because in Esther, he's not front and center, he's behind the scenes, but he is still very much at work, as I know he is in your life 
as well. So we're going to dig into that. If you would take a Bible and turn to the, the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible with you, or if you don't have a device to look it up, there's a Bible there close to you on the seat. And Esther is on page 451. Just a, a quick explanation on the, the timing of why we're, we're doing this study now. If you've been at Grace Point for, for the last few months, we've had some really heavy topics. So in March, we looked at um, how do we work with people, how do we love the people in our lives who think differently, maybe live differently than, than what we agree with in the areas of sexuality, in the areas of drug addiction. It's very, very heavy topics to talk through. Then this last month, we looked at facing the pain of life. I mean, the graphic we had was a guy crying, you know, for crying out loud. And so it's, it's just been a couple of heavy months. So, so I thought, let's, let's look at a story that's a little bit lighter. And so we're going to look at a story that's all about genocide. So we'll, we'll see how that... Uh, how that plays out. Actually, the, it is a, it's a fun book, and I think we'll have fun going through this, but that was a little bit of a spoiler if you don't know the, the story yet. But the other reason is that my oldest daughter, Jessica, has been after me literally for years to, to teach through this, this book. And so my kids are my, my harshest critics. They keep me very humble. And so they'll come home and tell me all the things that they would have done differently and why did you do this, whatever. But she, she comes home and she, she'll tell me constantly, why don't you ever preach on a woman and on women? And so I'm like, I, I could list off, you know, different messages a couple years ago on Easter. I mean, Easter is like Super Bowl Sunday for the, uh, for the church. We did Mary Magdalene. My whole message is about Mary celebrating her. Anyway, there's been a number of messages <laughs> on women, but we're going to devote a whole series here, this whole book on, uh, that has a female hero. And I'm going to use the term hero because heroine sounds bad. It sounds like, you know, something you shouldn't be messing with. So she's a female hero. But before we get into this, I want to warn you of something. And that is that there's a lot of chauvinism in this book. Okay, so we're going to encounter that. Some of you are going to be very offended by the male chauvinism in this book. And I want to just remind you of something. And that is the Bible often reports things without condoning them. Okay, so we need to keep that in mind. The Bible is reporting to us what the culture and the mindset is during this time. And so it's not saying this is the right way to treat people. This is the right way to treat women. It's just reporting it. And actually, this whole male chauvinism is central to, to the story. So let's, let's dig into it. Esther 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Okay, I want to pause there for a second just so we can get a read on where we are in history. Okay, the year is 483 BC and the kingdom is Persia which at that time was the world power. So the world has gone through a number of kind of world powers. Um, the, the Babylonians were previous to the Persians. The previous conquered them. The Greeks are going to come later and conquer them. The Romans are then going to emerge as the, the world power. But right now, Persia and Media is, the, the, the world of Persia is, is the world power. And so we have a map of their, 
the, the extent of the kingdom, basically the whole known world at that time. It's enormous. And so this king, Ahasuerus, and some of you may be reading in a different translation, says Xerxes, another name that he went by. He is the powerful man in the world at that time. And so this is, this is the place where the, the center of the world uh, is. And uh, all of the action that's happening in the book of Esther is happening in the capital of the Persian Empire, which is Susa. And so what we're going to find as we go through this uh, book is we're going to find some Jewish people in this capital of Susa. Just a few Jewish people left there, and they are far, far from home, as you can see on that map. Far from Jerusalem, that's about 800 miles, which in those days is like a world away. And so these people are displaced, they're away from their country of origin, they're in the middle of this powerful kingdom, and the reason that these Jewish people are there is because they have been exiled, they have been lifted, they have been punished for their disobedience, and God said, I'm going to take you out of your home in the promised land, and I'm going to exile you. I want to do just a really quick review for those of you who came to, to the walk through the Old Testament, okay, back in January. I need you to help me out with this. First service did not go well. So I need you to help me out. Uh, we're going to dig into the middle. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but I want to go through just a couple of the motions that have to do, starting with um, Israel, I mean, sorry, Judah exiled. Do you remember the emotions for Judah exiled? Okay, you can help me out. I hope that I get this right. Okay, yeah, so Judah exiled is they're taken away. And then what? Judah returned. Okay, so that's kind of the point where we find, do you remember the next one? Zerubbabel temple. So Zerubbabel returned to the promised land and built the temple. Now what's next? Esther queen. Okay, that's where we find our, ourselves. So they had been exiled because of their disobedience. They were allowed to come back, but we still find some people there in that capital of Susa. So let's read on. They're in the midst of this powerful kingdom, and we get a very clear picture of that. Uh, verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Um, historians think that this, this whole show of his wealth was leading up to a battle where he is going to be going to invade Greece. And so it was a failed attempt to, to attack Greece, but they think that this 180 days of just showing off and probably strategizing and thinking through what was, uh, how they were going to wage war, that's probably what this was about. Verse 5. When these 180 days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There, and now listen to the detail of, of how ornate this was. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of white linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. 
Apparently no compulsion to stop. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti, meanwhile, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. All right, so the king is, uh, is showing off. There's no question here he's, he's wealthy, he's powerful. He just wants everybody to know how, how great he is. So let's read on verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, and I'm not going to try to butcher the rest of these seven names, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti, before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. All right, so, so the king summons his queen. She refuses to come. We don't know why she refused to come. But, I mean, if you can put yourself in her shoes, especially you ladies may be able to put yourself in her shoes. She's thinking, here is a room full of drunken men, and he wants to parade me in like some kind of trophy wife. I don't think so. But King Ahasuerus, remember, he is, he is the king of the most powerful empire on earth. He's used to getting what he wants, when he wants, and he's not used to some woman telling him No. And so he is enraged, and he is upset, and he's got to figure out what to do next. So let the chauvinism begin. And he is he's now going to ask his advisors, what should we do? And for the sake of time, I'll just summarize this. He says, what, what, what should I do? What, how, how should I handle this? And his advisors say to him, well, if you don't do something about this, then all the women in the whole empire are going to act like this with their husbands. They're all going to start telling their husbands no. And we can't have that. And so what you should do in verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Apparently someone who will not say no. Verse 20, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. All right, so across the kingdom, the, the decree goes out that men are to be the master in their home. The ironic thing that I will just tell you as we keep reading is that the king himself just seems to kind of be led along by all the people around him. I, I don't know. It's interesting. Actually, we're going to see that right now when we go on into uh, to chapter 2. Okay. So he has deposed Queen Vashti. He's made this decree that all the men are supposed to be in charge. Now, verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, 
it, it doesn't say this here, so we, we may be reading a, a little bit between the lines, but I have to wonder, just the way this is written, if maybe King Ahasuerus had a little bit of regret here. If maybe, because he's thinking about Queen Vashti, he's thinking what she had done, and maybe I acted a little bit too hasty. And so uh, maybe he's pausing to, to kind of reconsider. Then verse 2, quickly, the, young, the king's young men who attended him said, Well, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. We're going to see this over and over again. This pleased the king. Well, whatever you say, we'll do it. I, I, I actually, you begin to wonder in the story if the king ever had an original thought. Because, I mean, people are just feeding this stuff, and he's like, yeah, okay, yeah, that sounds good, let's do that. And so that's what they do. They, they say, we're going to do this beauty contest, okay? So more chauvinism. And now we get introduced to the main characters, okay, starting in verse 5. These are the people that we really care about. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Okay, so right there is the exile. When we say Judah exiled, okay, Mordecai's ancestors were exiled, and so that's why Mordecai finds himself there, verse 7, he, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. She's an orphan. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made, it doesn't that sound, that's an odd statement, isn't it? The best place in the harem. That's a little bit weird. Anyway, verse 10. Esther had, I mean, how is there even a good place in the harem? I don't know. Verse 10. Esther had not been, had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. All right, I want to pause here for a second and, and unpack this a little bit because I want us to look at these two characters and I also want us to start looking at the choices that they make and the quote-unquote chances that happen to them. And I'm saying quote-unquote because what's going to unfold, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but what's going to unfold as we read this book is that none of this stuff is happening by chance. God is orchestrating all of it. But what it mounts to is the things that they are in control of choosing and the things that they're not in control of choosing. So I want to kind of unpack this as we go through. The first choice that Mordecai and Esther made was to not return to Jerusalem. They could have returned. Uh, 54 years earlier, they, the Jewish people were given freedom to return. And not only were they given freedom by the Persian government to return, actually, 
God's prophets told them, ordered them, you should return. You should go back and you should establish yourself in, in the land. So there had been a decree, there had been a, a prophecy by God to say, you need, you need to go. But, but for whatever reason, Mordecai and Esther didn't go. Maybe because their ancestors had lived there, their roots were now in Susa. And so they stayed there. Maybe they got comfortable with that life, didn't want to go to the unknown of, of Jerusalem. For whatever reason, they chose to stay. And that's why they're, they're there. By chance... Vashti is deposed from her queenly spot. What, for whatever reason, she refused to come in. She's deposed. And so if that had not happened, then there wouldn't have been a beauty contest, and Esther would never have gotten this opportunity that she's gotten. So that kind of happened by chance. Now, by chance, Esther is beautiful. We find that in, in verse 7. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to, to look at. And so uh, what I want to do, what I want to bring out of, of this, this is really our main point that I want to camp on, and we'll come back to this in, uh, a little bit later, is that our proficiencies uh, position us for God's purposes. So our, our proficiency, something that we're good at, some strength that we have, positions us for God's purposes. Esther doesn't know that yet. Esther doesn't have any idea that God is using her beauty, this strength that she has, he is using that to position her to do something amazing that we will find out as the story goes. But God's using a proficiency, if you could call beauty a proficiency, we'll come back and, and talk about that in a few, few minutes. But that is by chance, quote-unquote, that she is beautiful, that she has that strength. By chance, she wins the favor of the man who's in charge of the harem. And so uh, she's getting special treatment, special attention. By choice, she works with the system. Now, think about it. She, she didn't have to work with this system, and she had every reason to kind of perceive herself as a victim. I mean, she's an, she's an orphan. She's far from her country of origin, she, not only is she an orphan, so she's been raised now by her cousin, Mordecai, who apparently is older than she is because he would have been old enough to, to raise her. But so now she's made a home with him, and now she's been ripped out of this home for this beauty contest that may sound kind of dreamy. I mean, you know, don't all little girls want to grow up and be a princess and be, you know, swept off their feet by a prince? We've already seen enough of King Ahasuerus. He's, he's not the prince. He's not Prince Charming, okay? And as we're going to see, I mean, the system that they have worked out is that all these uh, young ladies, beautiful ladies, are going to be gathered up, and only one's going to get chosen, and the rest of them are cast aside for the rest of their life. They're not going to be able to have a normal life. They're just going to be kind of in the corner somewhere where the king never calls for them. Again, this is not a dream situation. The odds are not in your favor. And so Esther coming into this would probably be thinking, I, I don't want to be here. I didn't choose this. I don't like this. And yet, she says, I, I, didn't, I don't get to choose the hand that was dealt to me, but I do get to choose how I'm going to play my hand. And she must have a positive attitude because she would not have won the favor of this man in charge of the hair. And so she's working with the system. You and I don't get to choose the cards we're dealt in life. But we do get to choose how 
we're going to play them and the attitude we're going to have. Another choice is that she chooses not to reveal her ethnicity. So Mordecai tells her, don't, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. I mean, all through history, all through the world, Jews have seemed like they have um, not been a favored people other than by God. A lot of people are hate Jews, and so apparently in this time it was dangerous for her, so she hides that piece. Another choice is that she probably engaged, most likely, in activities that were against the law of God. So we see in here that she's being given food, uh, just like all of these other women, probably they were gonna, that was, food was going to violate the dietary laws, the strict laws that God had placed on his people, but that was a choice that she made. So let's, let's read on, verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, it's kind of like 12 months of a spa every day. I I don't know how that sounds to you ladies, but um, verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Sheshgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So this is the part where we see, you know, this is not a dream kind of come true kind of thing. I mean, she's, she, it, it would be nice if, if she wasn't chosen by the king, maybe she could just be released and go out and find another nice man to live the rest of her life with. But that's not happening. I mean, she's just going to be corralled and basically in prison for the rest of her life because she didn't get chosen. Verse 15. So again, so... The male chauvinism, the women getting cast aside. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Okay, so here's another choice. She takes what this man recommends that she take. And he apparently has been working with the king for a long time, so he kind of knows his preferences. So she listens to the counsel. She brings in whatever he recommends, and she wins favor. So by chance, she wins favor again. She's winning favor with all of these people. Verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. He's happy again. He's got a queen. And Esther, this little Jewish girl from 800 miles from home, has chosen from all this vast kingdom to be queen. And she has no idea, but God has put her in position for a major purpose and a major project that he is going to work out, and it's going to begin to unfold next week as the plot thickens, as they say. And she, she doesn't know it yet, but God has used her beauty 
to place her in a key spot so that he can use her. Our proficiency positions us for God's purposes. Let's, let's talk about her proficiency for just a moment. I mean, can we really call beauty a proficiency? Can we call beauty, like, I mean, it seems, honestly, just a little bit shallow, doesn't it? I mean, all this beauty contest stuff. And yet, this is the theme throughout the book, because we find out that Vashti was beautiful. We find out they're doing this major beauty contest for all these beautiful young ladies, and Esther gets chosen because she's lovely. And so it seems a, a little shallow, and even the Bible agrees with that. In Proverbs chapter 31, it says, uh, charm is deceptive, uh, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So a woman that we respect is someone who has a deep faith. She fears the Lord, and she has the fruit of her hands. She works hard. She produces things. We, we understand respecting a woman for those things, but the, the beauty thing seems a little bit shallow. And yet, God gave her this proficiency, this gift, this strength that he used to open a door. We're going to find out as this story unfolds, there's a whole lot more to Esther than what meets the eye. But... God uses her beauty to open the door. You have a proficiency of some kind. It may not seem very impressive to, to you. It, it may be beauty. It may be that you look great. Or it may be intelligence. Or it may be a, an intuition. It may be some kind of an athletic ability or an artistic ability or a music ability. And to you, it may not seem like a lot. Or it may not seem like it's that important. But God wants to use that proficiency that he has given you to position you for his purposes, not your purposes. Okay, don't, don't miss that piece. Because see, here's, here's where we get into trouble as human beings. A lot of times we use the proficiencies that God has given us for our purposes. We use beauty to attract people to us so that we can use them for our own pleasure and entertainment. And then we discard them. Or we use our intelligence to, to be successful in our business so that we can have power or so that we can gather wealth that we use for ourselves instead of using that proficiency and saying, God, what purpose do you have for me? And, and here's the thing. Sometimes we don't know what that is yet. Sometimes that's a discovery process, like it was for Esther. Esther doesn't understand why. She doesn't know yet that this door has been opened for her for a bigger purpose. And so sometimes we're in the middle of something, and God opens the door, and he uses a proficiency to put us in a place. And he has a bigger purpose that is yet going to unfold. So in the midst of that, we just need to say, okay, God, what, what do you want from me? What, what is it that you're up to? And help me just play along with your story that you are unfolding here. Our proficiency positions us for God's purposes. Athletic ability, you know, opens up the opportunity for some people to become famous, to make lots of money. And that can be very self-serving, or it can be used for God's purposes. If any of you were here Friday night for the Eagles Faith Playbook, so we heard from eight uh, Eagles who are sharing their faith as a result of God giving them the opportunity to win the Super Bowl. 
And so they could use that all for themselves, but they're saying, no, I want to use that for God's purposes. Their proficiency has positioned them in such an amazing way to be able to serve God's purposes during, during this season. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That, that word workmanship is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our word poem. Some versions of the Bible translate this masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. God took his time and he gave attention to creating you specifically with specific proficiencies. Why? Not so that you could have a great life and you could attract a lot of attention to yourself, but so that you could do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do, that we should walk in them. So here's my question as we end this morning. Our, our destiny, so we can, just, we can say, our destiny is not all about the choices that we make. It's not all about the chance that, uh, that seems to happen randomly. It's really about us choosing. It's, a, it's when I choose to cooperate with the chances that God gives me in, in life. And so my question for you this morning is, what proficiency do you have that God is using or has used to position you somewhere for his purposes, something that he wants to accomplish? And the prayer that we can ask is to say, God, what are you up to and how can I be part of it? Let's pray with me on that this morning. Father, um, Lord, help us not to use our lives for ourselves. Help us not to use our gifts and our strengths for ourselves, but to see them as being given to us for your purposes and your, your bigger picture, just as Esther did. And Esther was in the middle. She didn't know what's going to happen yet, but you had positioned her um, by chance and also by using the choices that she made. So, Lord, help us in our lives to make choices that cooperate with you so that we can be part of your bigger story, the bigger plan of redemption, renewal, freedom that you are working in in this world. Lord, we want to be part of that. And we ask you for grace to cooperate with you in Jesus' name. Amen.